0: This month marks the 74th anniversary of the United States dropping two atomic bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. On August 6th, 1945, an atomic bomb, codenamed Little Boy, exploded over Hiroshima. The bomb had a yield of about 15 kilotons, and it instantly killed some 80,000 people and leveled the city. Three days later, on August 9th, a 22 kiloton bomb, codenamed Fat Man, dropped on Nagasaki, killing more than 40,000 people instantly. Tens of thousands more would die in the weeks, months, and years to come. The terror caused by the bombings would end the war, and at the same moment, open a new door to an even more uncertain world. I'm Jeff Wilson, Policy Analyst at the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation, and this is Nukes of Hazard. President Barack Obama said in his historic visit to Hiroshima four years ago, On a bright, cloudless morning, death fell from the sky and the world was changed. A flash of light and a wall of fire destroyed a city and demonstrated that mankind possessed the means to destroy itself. For obvious reasons, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings are a tough topic to discuss. Most Americans are taught very little about them, other than it was a necessary evil that helped end the war in the Pacific. Our textbooks largely overlooked the discussion about the two bombs that ended up killing between 129,000 and 226,000 people, most of them civilians. People have questioned whether we needed to drop the bombs at all some say that pressure from the soviets combined with the american buildup of forces to invade the japanese home islands would have forced the emperor's surrender others say that the bombings were really a show of force to our erstwhile allies the soviets who were already starting to threaten western interests in europe and around the world but at the same time allied intelligence suggested that the united states would have lost over a million men invading those islands men like my grandfather and countless others who were on troop ships headed towards Honshu felt that the bombings had saved their lives. Now, I don't think that we will ever find a right answer to this dilemma. Wars are terrible, uncertain, and opaque endeavors. Even when fought for good reasons, they defy our ability to fit them into moral guidelines and constraints. But for whatever reason the bombs were dropped, Their creation opened a Pandora's box that has threatened the world and every single one of its inhabitants ever since. While the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings remain the only places where nuclear weapons were used in warfare, thousands more have been tested around the world, causing very real impacts on the health and livelihoods of many more thousands. Even so, we talk about these dangerous weapons in a very sanitized way. We talk about them as dollar amounts, or kiloton yields, or like other pieces of high-tech machinery. Not what they really are. Not as the most destructive weapons ever created. But the truth is that the current global nuclear stockpile, some 14,000 nuclear weapons, could end human civilization in under an hour. So today, I want to talk about nukes in a different way. In a human way. I was lucky enough to sit down with Kathleen Birkenshaw, a Japanese-American author of the book The Last Cherry Blossom. Kathleen's mother was a hibakusha, a survivor of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, and Kathleen has dedicated her life to sharing her mother's story and helping young Americans to understand why this issue is still so important today. Kathleen, thank you so much for being on with us today. I was wondering if you could tell us the story of what happened to your mother on that day of the bombing.
1: Thank you so much for having me, and, and I'm happy to do that. Um... My mother was 12 and a half when the atomic bomb was dropped in Hiroshima, and she had been away in the countryside for, a few, for about a month or so because after the um, fire bombings in Tokyo, her papa sent them out to a house in the country to be safe. But by the time all this rolled around, they were really tired of being there. She missed being with her papa, so they went back home uh, to Hiroshima. And that particular day was a Monday on August 6th, and they were still in school, since their school system runs at a different time than ours does here in the U.S., and she wasn't feeling well, so her papa said to her to stay home for that day. And then the next day, she could go with her classmates, who were in the center of town, taking down the wooden buildings. Again, because of the massive firebombs and the damage that was done in Tokyo, they hoped to... to prevent that should a firebomb be dropped on the center of their city so that put her students in the center of hiroshima uh, that morning there was another thing that my mom says was a huge coincidence that drastically changed her life Um, her papa had a newspaper company and he worked in the center of town of hiroshima but every day he worked at home in the morning and then he would travel into the center of town to his office however That particular day, he was heading to the train station because he had an employee whose son was injured and was in a hospital on the other side of Japan. And that employee didn't have the money to be able to purchase the ticket, so her papa wanted to do that for him. So that put him in the center of town at 8.15 that morning. My mom remembers that she saw one of her friends outside, and her friend was a couple years older, so she wasn't at class. And she went out to see her, and they were talking. And a siren went off, and they looked, and it was just a weather plate. So they knew that that wouldn't be a threat. And then they continued to talk, and my mother remembers hearing a siren and then seeing a large flash of white light and a huge noise. And at the same time, it felt like there was an earthquake, that the earth was, like, trembling beneath her. And she remembers just grabbing on to her best friend and screaming. The next thing she knows is she's waking up and she's covered with dirt and wood and debris from the house that they were standing next to. She's no longer close to her friend. She can hear her, but she can't touch her. And she's trying to dig her way through to find her. She can hear her crying, um, but then the dirt keeps falling on her. My mother got frightened. And she remembers then a little bit later hearing someone calling her name and it was her stepmother. She told her, if you try to climb out from inside, I'll try to make a hole on the outside here and you might be able to crawl through. But my mom didn't want to leave because she was very afraid to leave her friend. Um, But her stepmother told her, you can help her better once you're out. So my mom said it took quite a long time. And when she finally was able to come through, she remembers looking up and looking at the sky. And it was this weird shade of... Uh, orange and purple and red and blue. And then she happened to look to the side where her house was, and she realized that her house was no longer there, nor were any of the houses on her street. And she looked to the other side where she knew um, the center of town was in the distance, and all she could see were what looked like cyclones of fire. And she knew that her papa was over there. But she needed to get her friend out, and so she was trying to dig her out when, all of a sudden, they felt these raindrops, and it was like a black, sticky substance. So someone had yelled, they're burning, they want to burn us more, and they're pouring oil on us. And so her stepmother just picked her up and went running to trying to find some shelter. My mom, then the next thing she remembers is they needed to go look for her papa. She was woken up to do that. And as we walked through the city, it was very, very difficult because not only um, it was dark, it was should be the middle of the morning, but the people that were injured were just walking around. My mother said it almost looked like the mummies that are in the movies because they had seen movies like that. And they didn't focus on anything. They just kept going. the... Um, The stench was horrible. There were many people crying and burned. And she remembers that she felt something touch her hand and a little voice um, asking for help. And she turned, and it was a toddler, but she couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl because the face and everything was so melted from the blast. And she remembers being so frightened um, at that sight and running into her stepmother. And then later, she felt very guilty she couldn't help that little one, they arrived at the uh, train station where her papa was, and he was not there. So they decided to start walking a little bit further to see if they could find him, um, that maybe he was well enough to walk back towards the house. And her stepmother tripped. And when she looked down, she had tripped over my mother's papa. And he was still breathing, but he was unconscious. And so they were able to find someone that they knew, and they put together something that was once like a wheelbarrow to put him in. Uh, They felt that they could get him back towards the hospital where it once stood or back to where their house used to be. Somebody could help them. And my mother remembers looking at him and almost not recognizing him, uh, except for the three-piece Western suit that he wore, but his shoes were off and his face was a weird shade of a navy blue. She remembers seeing a wound on his side that looked like it was burning from the inside out. And as they started walking away with him, she kept saying to herself, Papa will be fine, Papa will be fine. And then she saw his hand um, fall off the wagon, and her stepmother screamed, and she realized that had just passed away and I will never forget her voice when she would tell this story and every single time I'm sorry she would cry as if it was just happening all over again and her Papa was the most important person in her life and with him gone like that, she just didn't know if she could continue, and she remembers looking at him and just trying to remember him as the person who used to walk her to school every morning and not seeing what he looked like there and wanting to cry so much, but she it was almost as if you know the the intense heat from the whole blast and everything that happened just kind of dried everything up, and she didn't know if she'd be ever able to feel anything again. Those were the hardest things, interviewing my mom and getting what happened from her, to be able to write the book about it and to be able to talk about it. And all her life, she had nightmares every beginning of August. And a lot of it was, if it wasn't about her papa, it was about that toddler that um, ended up dying within minutes from that anyway. But... Those those memories never, ever left her.
0: So tell us a little bit about your work. What was it that inspired you to start writing this book, The Last Cherry Blossom? What prompted you to want to tell this story?
1: Well, it was actually started, uh, the journey, by my daughter. She uh, was in seventh grade, so it was about nine years ago. And she came home from school, and she was really upset. And she said, you know, we finished the section on World War II, And as I was getting my books together, I overheard these kids talking about the cool mushroom cloud picture. And she said, can you talk to my class about the people who were under those clouds that day, like Grandma? And I called up my mom to ask her because I never spoke about it in public at all at that point. And my mother never did. She was very private. And in fact, she didn't start telling me the actual stories of what happened until I was in my 30s. I didn't know she was from Hiroshima. She said she was from Tokyo for the first nine years of my life. I only found out after she started having these nightmares, and I put together the next year that she was having a nightmare at the same time. That's when she first told me that she was actually from Hiroshima, that she lost her family and her home and friends from the atomic bombing. But she wouldn't tell me anymore because she just couldn't bear to talk about it. And then she said to me, please don't ever tell anyone. So I went through my school years, the book Hiroshima by John Hersey was the first time I really got an inkling of what she must have witnessed, and I remember being horrified and asking her about it, and again, she just said she couldn't talk about it, and then she begged me not to tell her teacher that she was there. But it wasn't until my early 30s, I had gotten very ill, I was in the hospital for over a month, and when I came home, I needed someone to help take care of me. My daughter was four to help with her while my husband worked during the day. And my mom and my dad came. And that's when my mom would tell me stories of her childhood that were happy. And then she slowly gave me pieces of what she went through that day and the aftermath. So when I spoke to her and I asked her, can I speak to my daughter's class? And she said, yes. And that surprised me. I did not expect that. And she said, well those children are gonna be about the same age that I was when the bomb dropped. And they can probably then be late to my story and then they leave the room and they're all going to be voters someday. Mm-hmm. And they can remember this and know that nuclear weapons should never be used again. And that was really the, the catalyst. And once I started speaking to the class, they invited me the following year for the new seventh graders and other middle schools heard about it. and the teachers started asking if there would be any kind of a book that they could use with their curriculum to show the Pacific side, which was not really covered very much other than the two paragraphs in a textbook. So I started to write and started to work on it. And I remember telling my mom that people wanted to know about a book, and she was shocked. She just said, I didn't think anyone would want to hear my story. Um, I think she had felt that she didn't have a voice for such a long time, and to know that some people would want to hear what happened um, really surprised her. The bittersweet thing is that she passed away a year before the book came out, but she did know it was going to be published. I showed her the publishing contract, and she read one of the drafts of the book, so she had an idea of what was going to be in it, and she was so happy that I could tell a story about her family or about her papa but really for me it was showing her strength of what she went through and then how she continued to push through later on after that
0: I I think that your work is so important something that I think that is so often been lost in our work and in discussions about nuclear weapons in general is these humanitarian consequences of these weapons that in an instant 80,000 people in Hiroshima could be killed or 40,000 in Nagasaki. How have you found audiences uh, to be receptive to this human perspective about these weapons?
1: They have been very receptive. And, And as you talk about with the talk shows and when they discuss the nuclear weapons policies, my biggest thing, and that's why I wanted to also contact with you as well, is that there is, for people to start to understand the numbers and, and the strategies and all of that is important, but for them to really think about and care about it, I think they need to hear what actually happened to people, because I think we're 74 years out, people can be desensitized about a lot of things, and my biggest thing was to show the emotional connection, because we all have that, no matter what country you live in, what, no matter what religion you are. You all have that human emotion. And I found that when you speak to these middle school students, I also speak to high schoolers, and I've spoken with adults. And when they hear the story, some of them may not have um, known much about it, and they will come up to me and they will say, I totally have changed my mind about nuclear weapons. I thought it might be something that could be used at a time, but now I realize what happens to families and how much the bomb does not you know, it doesn't discriminate. My mother was a little bit more of an upper class area. She still lost everything she knew. It didn't matter if you're rich or poor, what your color was, what your race was. Um, And I think for them to be able to come to that after hearing me speak, that to me puts the humanization into it all and not to look at it as they were just an enemy because they were people, they were families. Um, and, And I think a lot of times the misinformation that's out there Uh, It makes it look like it was a huge army base, and it was at one time. But by then, Japan had been at war since 1931, and they were depleted by a lot of supplies. There were mostly women, children, and older people that were left there. And I think once they start to understand and understand the culture and the mindset of the people at that time and, and the type of propaganda that the government used against their own people, and, and that's why with my book, I purposely started it months before the bomb was dropped, just so I could show that. And, and they can relate to someone's life. My mother was 12 years old. She didn't like homework. She didn't like to clean. And, she, you know, she had some family issues as well that had popped up. And I think kids have told me that they can still resonate with her story, even though this happened so many years ago. And to me, that just solidifies the need for the emotional information. And, and if we don't have people who are first or second generation Habaksha that are on boards or who are talking about this along with, here's the policy, here's the no first use that we want, here's how many thousands of people could be killed, um, you know, the strength of 15,000 tons of TNT, and the amount that we have in our arsenal right now could be 1.2 million tons of t- TNT. By telling them the emotional piece first and then following up with those facts, I really think that you need the two together because I think numbers and facts after a while just kind of go over people's head, and they can't do that when you start talking about what happened to somebody's family, and they can very well understand that this will happen to yours, and and to me, that is the impact we need, not just the two paragraphs and a picture of the mushroom clouds, which I hate because to me, it just represents all the people that were killed underneath it, all the family members I lost. I'm sorry. I'm very, I'm just very passionate (laughs) about the fact of of getting that piece out.
0: No, I mean, uh, this is, this is incredible. Thank you so much for sharing all this with us. I want to come at this from a slightly different angle. Now you've brought out so much good stuff that I want to dig into. One of the other problems that I think that is Americans that, that we face with this issue is that many Americans don't know how to look at the bombings, right? I think in some respects, a lot of Americans think that they were, even though they were terrible and inhumane, they were somehow still morally justified. My own grandfather was with the 1st Marine Division, and he always said that it had saved his life. He was on a troop ship to, to Honshu. George Schultz, who's a leader in our community, who thinks that nuclear weapons are this terrible scourge on modern society, also had a very similar experience and said much the same thing. But when faced with the enormity of what was done to people, like you said, to humans, just like any of us, Americans, Japanese, anyone, it's hard for most people to to be able to square that reality. How do you think we can overcome this bias? How do you think we can overcome the fact that we just look at them as cool mushroom clouds, like those kids said? How can young Americans react to this in a better way? And how have they reacted to this, this incredible story that you've told?
1: I think part of it is the fact that they realized what was going on in the country
0: at that time in Japan. And and I
1: think there, there's also been more information that had been on Earth. And yes, it did save some American lives, but that wasn't the only reason that it was used. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that's important to understand it, too. But at the same time, I spoke to schools in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And Oak Ridge is where they had Manhattan Projects set up that actually did the uh, enrichment of the uranium for the actual bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. And I was a little nervous to go there because I wasn't quite sure how well I'd be received. But, you know, when I spoke to the students, and this is, this was my full thought, is that when I speak about what happened, it's not to show any blame. And my mother had always said that because she said that war was hellish for both sides. And so when I tell her story, it can exist along with the american side it does not um, demonize or make anyone less patriotic for the duty that they were doing to their country that they you know this is what they were told to do and this is what they wanted to do so my story about my mother can still exist with that and i think sometimes people say well you know pearl harbor so then you know the bombing of hiroshima i don't understand why we can't realize how awful the bombing of pearl harbor was as well as how awful the atomic bomb was and I think until we can get enough people talking like that, it may be hard for others to, to really understand that. And I have a great respect for our military. I've had people in my family that fought at that time. And, but I don't think that me speaking about what happened and trying to tell people that it can't happen again, that it's not something we need to do. We can't just keep saying, oh, but there's a small amount that we could use. There's no amount that should be used at all. And and so I find that the students to me, even in Oak Ridge, they were very compassionate. They were they had family members that had worked at the the plants, but yet they could see the humanity that was being damaged. So now that we know, then we didn't know what would happen. But now that we do, there's no excuse for us to not continue speaking about this, to not keep their stories alive, to not let their voices matter. Because if we start ignoring voices like that, how are we ever going to learn not to treat other people who we think might be our enemies? We need to realize they're not always so different from ourselves. And and I think that's such, such an important message, especially today. And I think that it can tie in very nicely with learning about what happened when the bombs were dropped and why they shouldn't be used again and who those people were, um, and that they were people, they were families that were under those clouds. And students, I find, have reacted so wonderful to that, and it really touches my heart when someone comes up to me and says, you know, when the North Korea uh, last year, when there were these is- issues... And she said, I overheard some kids talking about we should just nuke them. And I stepped in and I told them about the story of your mother and why we shouldn't use them again. Now, that to me is worth so much more than I could have ever hoped to hear from a message. And I know my mother would have loved to hear that in her lifetime.
0: That's incredible. So now let's look sort of to this contemporary moment here for a second. We're now in this moment in this administration where the U.S. is talking about building this new generation of smaller and more usable nuclear weapons, which is really disturbing to, to me and to yourself and to so many people. But at the same time, there's been a struggle to get people to realize just what that means. Why should young Americans and young voters be caring about this right now, this crazy idea of more usable nuclear weapons?
1: Well, first of all, there's no such thing as a more usable nuclear weapon in my mind anyway. I think they need to know that by just letting something like that exist, that opens up the door that it can be dropped on your home, on your neighborhood, on your family, and trying to picture losing everything you knew in an instant, it would be gone. And I think the more that they understand the reality that's behind it, they'll realize that it's a misnomer to say a little damaging bomb or not enough uh, of a damaged bomb. I never understood that because to me, any kind of damage, any kind of horrific damage that you can bring from an atomic weapon, it's not small. It's not small to my mom when she lost all of her family. It wasn't small to her then when she lost her best friend. It wasn't small to the parents who lost their children at that time. So to me, there is no such thing as a small use a nuclear weapon and I think by the more we can educate and get the stories out there the more that they will start to understand why because we're not the only ones that have it and if we have a little bit and the others keep having I don't don't see how that we can call that being our defense strategy It, it just opens it up for somebody to use it and it only takes one person to do it once and so many lives will be changed forever um, and even if it didn't happen like to the United States and it was somewhere else, I always like to use this example of if Pakistan and India use their nuclear weapons against each other. But so much smoke would go in the stratosphere that it would block seven to ten percent of the earth's sunlight around the world. It would affect everyone. And I think the more that they understand that, then the more they can hear about the facts and about the the statistics, but they need to hear about, what happened first and what can happen to them and how realistic it is for that kind of a danger. I think sometimes we get desensitized this kind of information the further you get away. And the less that I see of them speaking to actual Hiroshima or Nagasaki survivors or um, bringing them out when they're discussing this, because it is so important to have that peace. And I think that's what can help the future voters is to really understand that better.
0: Great. I think that your message, your mother's message and her story is so incredibly powerful here. I just want to give you a moment to sort of share whatever it is that you think that people need to hear in this moment that that our listeners need to take away from your mother's story And about, you know, is there hope? Is this something that together all of us can work and do better on to make the world safer from these weapons? Do you think that that your mother's story can, can give us any insight into that question that we all here work at?
1: I believe that it can. And I think what I really wanted to show through writing my book, through talking about her story, is that the children in Japan, like my mom, they love their family. They loved their friends, they worried about what might happen to them, and they wished for peace. Everything that the Allied children were also feeling. And so to me, the more that we can understand that, the more that we can realize that the ones, as I mentioned before, that we think are our enemy are, are just like ourselves. They all have families. They all love their families. Um, And we think more about the people. And I think once we start doing that, there is hope to then start voting in a way that they prevent having a, a low yield nuclear weapon. We really need to get that human connection back. I mean, you know, time can pass, technology will change. But the humans always need connection in some way, shape, or form. And we all have hearts, and we all have emotions, and we all care for something. And I think if then we can take these stories and replace it with what we really care for, then I have a lot of faith in our young voters that they can turn things around for us and make it a safer world for my child, for my child's child someday as well.
0: Thank you so much, kathleen. this was This was incredible experience for us here. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking to our listeners today. it's It's really special. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today for this powerful episode. You can find out more about Kathleen's work on our website www.KathleenBurkenshaw, that's B-U-R-K-I-N-S-H-A-W.com, or you can find her book, The Last Cherry Blossom, however you'd like to get your books these days. You can also check out the UN's Office for Nuclear Disarmament Affairs website, which has made her book an official resource for teachers and students. People can also get in touch with her on Instagram, at KathleenBurkenshaw, or on Twitter, which is at KL Birkinshaw and the number one. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter at Nuclear Wilson and learn more about our work at www.armscontrolcenter.org. On Twitter and Instagram at Nukes of Hazard. That's at nukes underscore of underscore hazard. Thank you so much for joining us.